last week with chapter 4, we looked into chapter 5, and this week with chapter 5, we're going to look back into chapter 4. Revelation is one vision, singular, one revelation. There's no S on the end of Revelation. It's one vision that God gave to John to show him what is coming, what is happening. And the first couple chapters, two and three, are seven letters to seven individual churches, local congregations. They're applied to all the church and all the churches. Right after that, we finally get to some vision type stuff. And in chapter four, it begins with, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So he is looking into heaven, what it will be like, what's going on there. And chapters four and five go together. And it is, as I said last Sunday, a most magnificent scene, glorious. Truly more glorious than we can really speak to or try to describe. And you see this as we're reading it. There's a lot of imagery and a lot of symbolic stuff there. Heaven is, but we are to get the point. Wow. Heaven is awesome. Heaven is great. All of creation gathered around the throne, worshiping. One of the things that we noticed last Sunday from Revelation 4 is that all creation, every living thing is around and centered upon a throne in heaven. And there is one seated on the throne. There's a lot of talk about heaven these days, lots and lots of different ideas of heaven. And we want to be correct or accurate in knowing at least what the Bible says about heaven. It doesn't tell us everything. There are lots of questions unanswered in our lives about heaven. But the Bible does tell us some stuff about heaven, and so we want to be knowledgeable of that and faithful to what God says. That means we are to understand that the focus of heaven is that throne and the one seated on it. And that should be the focus of our lives. For you and I to be heavenly, heavenly minded, heaven bound, we ought to be focused on the throne and the one who's seated on the throne. And we cannot allow this life and being tired and busy and stressed, and we cannot allow all the things that we don't know, we don't understand, we don't get, to push us away from that, that, that which we do know and that which we do understand. And I will admit, and I can admit for all of them, but there's a reason why God gave us his word. And there's a reason why God gave us this book in his word, Revelation. And there's a reason why God gave us these chapters in this book, in his word. 
that you and I would know soon and very soon in this, we will be, by the grace of God and salvation, in this setting. Before the throne and the one seated on it, gathered worshiping. It is to be a most dynamic, magnificent scene. I don't know if you were one of the brave souls that ventured to thunder over Louisville yesterday. It was great weather, probably some sunburn, not always great weather for thunder. But just the idea of roughly one million people gathered at the waterfront beside the Ohio River, Kentuckians and people from Indiana. What do we call people from Indiana? Indians? I don't even know. A million people gathered there roughly, yelling and cheering and applauding after the fireworks show, the light show. That's a scene, isn't it? And if you've been in that before, you've thought, man, it's crowded. There's a lot. Where are we going to park? I hear of people taking, you know, such a long time to get out of it once it's over. I hear of people saying that they walked miles just to get there. I hear of people saying we got there at 9 a.m. and we didn't get home till midnight. I mean, it's a big deal. And yet, this is one event in our city for local people. Imagine how big and populated heaven is going to be. Can you imagine? This isn't people gathered around a bridge at the waterfront. This is people gathered around the throne of all creation. And there will be more than one million people there. There will be so many people. Our passage today at chapter 5 shows us a little more of that scene. Read with me, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the, 20, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels 
numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Word and glory and am who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That is a scene, is it not? That chapter, Revelation chapter 5, is one of the most liked passages in the whole Bible. I've met many people over the years who have said that's their favorite chapter in Scripture. That passage is about the throne, and that passage is about the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb. But that passage is also about people. And there's very little in chapter 4 about people, but chapters 4 and 5 go together. There's a question asked at the beginning of our chapter today, and that will be my first point this morning. For you kids that are using a listening page, you can follow along now. Point number one is the question, who is worthy? Sometimes when you get into a very tense or strict or official setting, you are told, don't ask any questions. Just listen. And this is heaven, and the one on the throne who has all authority is there. But there is a question asked. And the question is, in verse 2, who is worthy? The question comes from a mighty angel, not from a human. But the question comes out of this worship, verse 1. Then I saw, so after he sees all of that worship from uh, chapter Four, worship of, of the creator from his creation. That's basically what chapter four is. Worshiping the creator from the creation. That's how it's supposed to go. Everything created is supposed to worship its creator, and we get real sideways and out of line and incorrect when we start worshiping creation, any aspect of it, even people. After chapter four, verse five, chapter five, verse one says, then I saw. So he sees more. He sees something else. He sees something developing. He sees in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, a book, if you will, written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. So that whole scene of chapter four is still there, but the story now slows down a little bit and we get some detail. That one seated on the throne is holding something. He's holding a book, a, a scroll. And a very unique part here that I don't have any explanation for, I just want to point out, is that you never write on the back of a scroll. They're rolled up. But this one is written on both sides. And it's sealed with seven seals. There are a lot of questions about this scroll and these seals, and we're going to get there. I want you to flip over real quickly to chapter 6. Does everybody see what chapter 6 is about? The seven seals. 
So today, I'm not going to say much about that. It's coming. I will say, though, that the scroll is the unveiling of all of redemptive history. Understanding history by way of God's plan to save the world. That's what the scroll is, and we're going to see this in the coming chapter. But he sees that scene of the one seated on the throne holding this scroll, and while he sees that, and it's, it's while he... He's holding a scroll. It's got seven seals on it. It's while he sees that, that he sees a mighty angel also saying or proclaiming with a loud voice in verse 2, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, this is an interesting question. Because initially, as soon as you think who's worthy to approach the throne, that's basically the question. Who's worthy to approach the throne? Everybody should know nobody. Nobody can approach the throne of God. But this narrative, this story is showing us this played out, slowed down for us that we would process each and every step of it. So the question is asked, who is worthy? And, and, and then in verse 3, you get this deep answer. No one. But it's not just nobody. No one in heaven. Think about that. We got some denominations now that use the word saint in an improper way. That those people are already altogether completely holy in a sense that takes away redemption in Christ. That they're already in sainthood in heaven. This says no one in heaven. After that it says no one on earth. As if maybe there is somebody thinking that they're good enough to go to heaven and walk straight through the gates and walk right up to the throne. And then after that it says, no one under the earth. Which is an interesting wording. It speaks to people that have already died. Approach the throne. People that have died are not all of a sudden worthy to approach the throne. I know you and I all get real sentimental when people are passing away, and we go quickly into they were the best person I've ever known, and they deserve it, and surely if anybody's in heaven, they are. But this passage is showing us that there is no one worthy. That's an awareness in heaven. If it's an awareness in heaven, then it ought to be an awareness that you and I carry now. Verse 3 says, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so, verse 4, John, seeing the vision, began to weep loudly. Why is he crying loudly? Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. God gave us verse 4 so that you and I would think correctly, accurately about heaven. God gave us verse 4 so that you and I would think divinely about heaven, so that you and I would think 
majestically about heaven so that you and I would think in a God-centered way about heaven. One of the most important things for a Christian is to think biblically about heaven. And we have the Apostle John, okay, the Apostle John. He knows Jesus. He knows him well. He knows him uh, before the cross. He knows him on the cross. He knows him after the cross. He knows him in the grave. He knows him in the resurrection. In the resurrection. He knows them in the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, John knows Jesus. He knows God. He knows the kingdom. He's the one seeing this. And John here is weeping loudly because when he saw heaven, which we have not seen, when, we, when he saw heaven, there was nobody there worthy. Nobody there in heaven, nobody on the earth, and nobody under the earth. It was a huge reminder. Goodness on your own. You do not get to heaven on your own. On your own goodness, on your own merit. You don't work your way there, earn your way there. No one is worthy. When the question is asked, who is worthy? The question is asked so that we would get the correct answer. We read earlier in the service from Romans chapter three. And Romans chapter three is a place that shows us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 says that the awareness is that all are under sin, Jews or Gentiles. Good parents and bad parents have sinned. Liars and honest people have sinned. All we like sheep have gone astray. Romans 3 says that there is no fear of God before their eyes. No one is worthy to get to heaven. I remember a few years ago, North Carolina came to play Louisville here at the Yum Center. This is probably three, four, five years ago, and I was able to go. I got tickets, and I went there, and I got there early enough that I could watch them warm up, and I just thought, like a little child, if I get there early enough, I'm going to go down there on the court and maybe give them a hug or something like that, and you can't. You can't get down there. My seat wasn't anywhere close to the court, but I went, I went all the way down there, and there's a security guard here and a security guard there, and they've got, it's roped off there. You can't get there. And I just thought to myself, I wonder, I see a few people down there. I wonder, wonder what those people did or had to do to get there. I couldn't get down there. A couple summers ago, we went on a road trip to New York, and on the way back through New York, we stopped through Washington, D.C. We didn't spend the night, but we parked, and we... Walked around all of Washington, D.C. It was awesome. We saw the Lincoln Monument and the, the Jefferson Memorial. And we saw the Smithsonian. And we saw all these awesome things. And we walked by the White House. And I remember one of our kids saying, President, just think about that question for a minute. What if we could walk up to the front door and knock, you know? What if he'd come out? What if we could meet the President? You know how hard it is to even get on the street of the White House? You can't even touch the fence that's a couple hundred yards away from the White House. Think about that. There are so many places in our lives you can't enter there. Unless you've got some serious credentials, you can't. You can't go to a basketball game here in Louisville, Kentucky and walk down to the court. You can't go to Washington, D.C. and walk up to the president. Not a chance. So we understand this, don't we? And surely we all can accept or believe or admit that 
God is a little bit more important than college basketball. God is a little bit more important than the government of the United States. The question in heaven is who's worthy to go up to the throne? And the obvious answer is nobody. Nobody in heaven, nobody on earth, nobody under the earth. There is no way. So he's crying. That's the scene. Now, if you're not careful with biblical teaching and preaching, if you're not laboring to be consistent to the whole counsel of God and to the message of God, then sometimes you'll get sidetracked or lose focus, and you'll start to harp too much on one single point. And if I wrapped up our sermon here today, that'd be a pretty discouraging morning, wouldn't it? If we stopped at Revelation chapter 5, verse 4, where the apostle John's weeping loudly because there's nobody worthy anywhere, then we would be a depressed, sad people. Be careful with your Christianity, with your, your friend posts, with your street corner preaching, with your neighborhood talks, with your friendships, and with your family conversations that you don't get too distracted on making one point and you forget the rest of it over here. Christianity is a full message. And Christianity is off of a book that's a long book. And the whole counsel of God is Genesis to Revelation. And where the Bible tells us that we are not worthy, it keeps going and gets to us understanding why that is a good thing. Being told that you are not worthy. Do y'all hear the sound going in and out? Being told that you're not worthy is not to be a bad thing for you. It is to lead you into a good thing. So the second question this morning, after we ask who is worthy, the second question this morning is, is he worthy? Is Christ really worthy? And it's so much more than just, yeah, he's the best. It's so much more than just, yeah, he's the greatest. He is the best, and he is the greatest, but the Bible tells us a whole lot. Look at verse 5. While he's weeping loudly, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Well, that was short. He's crying in verse 4, and he's already told to stop crying in verse 5. It was like that. And that's why I'm saying if we harp too much or we emphasize too much verses 1 through 4, we never get to verses 5 through 9, we've not been real healthy and consistent with what all we're supposed to say. Verse 5 says, weep no more. Behold. That means look. Open your eyes. Hey, check this out. Look over here. Behold. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. What a good word. I mean, it sounds like help is on the way, but it's so much more than help is on the way. It sounds like, but I got good news for you. It sounds like, hey, you're not going to believe this, but it uses a huge military term of conquered, sin, death, the devil, history, years, hundreds of years. Thousands of years, suffers, bishop, wars, sin, divisions, all of that has been overcome. It has been conquered. We need to have the word conquered in our faith a little more often, don't we? 
Sometimes life is so hard and so discouraging, and sometimes we are limping so much or crawling so much. Sometimes we are so close to quitting and giving up that we need a big word like conquered. Hey, hey, it's not, hey, not Jesus loves you that we often try to say, which that's a great thing to say, and there's encouragement there. But sometimes we need to hear, hey, you need to remember it's been conquered, overcome in the largest way. But there's detail here. He describes him as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now we know lions are the king of the jungle. They are huge, they're loud, they're strong. They fear nobody. We have here the tribe of Judah. What a good word. This is the last book of the Bible. Isn't that good? But this Judah comes from the first book of the Bible. The one who's conquered in the very end is the one who was promised to conquer from the very beginning. When we hear Judah here, we are reminded of the book of Genesis. That's where you learn about Judah. If you didn't know anything today about Judah and you think, why why do they call him the lion of the tribe of Judah? And you wanted to look it up, it would take you to Genesis. In the beginning of all of this, this, uh, God makes some promises to Abraham. And he tells Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation. He's going to make him into a kingdom. And he forms a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham is going to have children and so many children. And God is going to create his family, his kingdom, out of Abraham. And so that means that we have to watch and keep up with and follow closely the family line, the genealogy, the lineage out of Abraham, which we do. We follow it very closely. And they believe physically are from that, and yet all believers are spiritually from that. They believe the promises of God the way Abraham believed the promises of God. Well, Abraham had Isaac, and so that's the next step. And Isaac had Jacob, and that's the next step. And Jacob had 12, 12 sons. That's the 12 tribes of Israel. And so out of those 12 sons, which one is going to be the one that the Savior comes through? Well, it's Judah. A lot of people think it's Joseph because he's the main character through the rest of Genesis, but it's not. Jesus didn't come through Joseph. Jesus came through Judah. So in Revelation, or rather in heaven, when the crying is stopped, when the weeping is stopped, when the conversation of who's worthy is brought up, it doesn't just say, hey, I found a great guy that I think can solve our problem. That's true, but that's a real shallow and cheap way for us to present Christianity. Christianity is not just the best ticket in town to make your life better. Christianity is the fulfillment of the promises of God from the beginning of creation. This isn't just some new religion that happens to get the best results in our day. It is the religion of the one true God throughout the history of the world. It is God working to save sinful people. It is God doing a mysterious, magical, gracious work to turn hearts and change people into people that believe him. There was no fear of God in their eyes in Romans chapter 3. Christianity is God making people fear him through a relationship that comes through forgiveness. And this all comes about when the angel or the elder tells John, stop weeping, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. 
And you can imagine there's some people out there going, well, you know, what is that? Lion of the tribe of Judah, who, what, when, where, how? I don't even know anything about that. And sadly enough, in our day and in our churches and in our homes, there's a lot of people that would go, what, what is that? Lion of the tribe of Judah? But for those who care, and those who are seeking, and those that we know exactly what that means. It means Jesus. It means Jesus as promised from the very beginning. The last book of the Bible believes the first book of the Bible, and the last book of the Bible strengthens what the first book of the Bible teaches. After he says the lion of the tribe of Judah, he qualifies it a step further and says the root of David. So this isn't like the beginning of the Bible. This is like the middle of the Bible, isn't it? The middle of the Bible, the middle of the Old Testament. The middle of the Old Testament is full of the stories of kingship and the greatest king that we've had that was a sinful king is David. He's the greatest king that we knew of, although he's a sinner and he died as well. All of the, or not all, many of the Psalms were written by David, but yet the Bible teaches us in lots of places, one being Isaiah chapter 11, that from David would come the king that God would raise up out of David's family, the stump of Jesse, the Savior. That on David's throne, the king throne, there would be a king forever. And yet all those that we knew from David died, and that means Jesus. And so what we have here in Revelation 5, coming from the elder to the weeping John, is God's got a plan. God has had a plan. It's what they were studying 1,000 years ago in Genesis and the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's what they were studying a few hundred years ago, through a few hundred years ago at this time in the life of David and through all the kingship. It's what we see in all the promises of God that God told us he would send a Savior, and he did, and he has conquered. And because he has conquered, look at the end of verse 5. so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus Christ is able to approach precisely what needs to be done. God be approached and somebody tell us what's going on in the scroll, reveal to us what's going to happen, open up the seals and let us know. The question is obviously, is he worthy? Now, all of that in verse 5 is just what that elder said to John. So then we get in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, there's, there's just so much here, and I hope that you've heard this before. He sees... A lamb standing as though it had been slain. It's not slain anymore. You could tell that it had been slain. He's conquered. But he wasn't told of a lamb. He was told of a what? A lion. What a great description of the Lord Jesus. He is lion-like and he is lamb-like. He is both the lion and the lamb. Tom Schreiner writes, the importance of the lamb is evident in the book of Revelation. 
For this right here is the first of 26 times that Jesus is identified as the Lamb. Certainly, Jesus' self-giving death for the sake of his people is the center of the New Testament witness. Jesus giving his life like a sacrificial lamb for us is the most central point of it all. It is the thing that heaven, if you get, when you get to heaven, if you get there, it will be because the lamb was slain. It will be because the conquering lion predicted from of old died, suffered, gave his life for you. One commentator says that the seven-sealed book is opened not because he mauled his opponents like a lion, but because he gave his life for sinners like a lamb. Now, the lamb here standing as though it had been slain in verse 6 says, or it says, that he has seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And, and we've seen enough now in the book of Revelation to know that the seven horns is just full strength and the seven eyes are just full sight. And then the seven spirits represent the Holy Spirit accompanying the lamb around the throne. This is the Trinity here. This is a beautiful thing. Verse seven, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That's a very simple verse and a very simple sentence. But you've got to grasp the magnitude of it. If I was at the Yum Center and the security and all that were saying, sorry, you can't, and I just tried to go, oh, oh yes, I can, what would happen, right? If I was at the White House and all of those things and cameras and even the secret people that are hiding with guns in hand, and I said, no, I'm, I'm going up there. I'm just about to jump this fence. I grew up jumping fences. I'm going to jump this fence. I can make it. I, I'm pretty sure I can make it. What would happen? And yet, Galatian 5, imagine that somebody would even attempt that. The Bible tells us in Revelation 5 that Christ goes straight up to the throne, to the hand of the one seated on the throne, and is able to grab the scroll. Christ is able to do that. Verse eight, and when he had taken the scroll, an explosion happens, literally, an explosion happens, an explosion of response, an explosion of joy and belief and worship, and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. This word, new song, is fitting because in the Old Testament, anytime there was deliverance, the Old Testament says they sang a new song. 
Hey, God did it again. Hey, he saved us. He bailed us out of this situation. I can't believe he did it. And the Old Testament says that anytime the people were delivered, they sang a new song. We're going to rejoice again afresh. And that's the word here. They sang a new song. And this time, it's worthy. Specifically, worthy is Jesus Christ to take the scroll and to open its seals. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made a, them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Everything is singing, he is worthy. Why is he worthy? Because he was slain. Now, the worth here is not worth that he has because he died for us. The worth here is the worth that he has because of who he is. And if he's worthy and he died for us, then we can have our salvation. That's a beautiful distinction for us to recognize. Soon as that happens, there's another response. He looks again in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels. So now the angels are brought in. Numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy wealth and wisdom and lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, what we can't miss here, and this is why we are people of the book, this is why we are followers of Christ and believers in the truth of the inspired, inerrant, true word of God. You must recognize that the songs they're singing to the one seated on the throne in chapter four in heaven are the same songs that they're singing in chapter five to the one not seated on the throne, to the lamb standing beside the throne. Y'all, there's a world of people out there that will fight you and disagree with you till the end that Jesus is not God. The Bible will not let you have that stance. In heaven, they sing, worthy is the Father on the throne. And in heaven, they sing, worthy is the Lamb standing beside the throne. Either they don't know who they're worshiping or they worship them together, right? Yes. Heaven is not confused. By the time you get to heaven, all confusion is over. They worship the one who deserves the worship. They worship the one who is holy. They worship the one who is worthy, and they're worshiping the Father on the throne, and they're worshiping the Christ, the Son, the one lion lamb standing beside him. Shriner writes, the lamb is worshiped just as God is worshiped. You see this. It shows us that the lamb is fully God. He goes on, though. Listen. He says, what is remarkable about this is that the God who sits on the throne and the Lamb are placed on the same level. To both of them, blessing and honor and glory and might are ascribed. The Lamb shares the same prerogatives as God. Yet John, listen, yet John as a Jew would be a monotheist, no doubt about it. All Jews know there's only one God, monotheist, one God. John doesn't explain how the Lamb could share divinism with the Father forever without compromising his monotheism. But clearly he believes they can do so, providing insight into the doctrine of the Trinity. The word Trinity is not used here, but you have the Spirit and the Son at the throne being worshipped. It's clear. 
After that song in verses 11 and 12, you get this in verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, okay, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What a chapter. The question I'm asking for my second point is, is he worthy? And the Bible, not our opinion, the Bible, the truth, the scene from heaven says, yes, 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 he's worthy. In chapter four, God is worshiped as the creator. And in chapter five, God is worshiped as the redeemer. Two massive pillars, perhaps the two most important pillars of all. God made us and God saves us. God is our creator, maker, and God is our Redeemer, Savior. Chapter four is all about we worship you because you made us. You're holy, you're right, you're worthy for you created and you sustain. Chapter five is we worship you because you're holy, because you're true, because you're good, because you're worthy, you were slain, you redeem, you ransom. It's all about redemption. And we cannot separate four and five. We see that four and five go together. You see the similarities of these songs, and you think, wow, God is worthy. Yes, Christ is worthy. You got language here where you see the word ransomed. And ransomed means that you bought something or you paid the price for something, problem. It's like redeeming in the sense that it's just an equal playing field. If you got enough money, there's no problem. It's, it's redemption with a little bit of a problem. And this past week in our Ephesians Bible study, we discussed this a little bit, the difference between redemption and ransom. If you look up the word ransom, it's gonna use the word redemption. It's like you turn something in, some, some tickets for a prize or a gift card for however much it's worth. Except ransom carries with it a negative, like you're, you're in jail and we gotta pay the ransom to get you out of jail, or you're in captivity or you're kidnapped and we gotta pay the ransom to get you out. I'm gonna redeem you because there's a problem and you need to be redeemed. That's what happened to get people to heaven. Jesus is worthy because he's the only one who can approach the throne and deal with the Father be accepted by the Father. It's not us. So my third and final question this morning is where does our worth come from? This is a hard question to discuss because we're trying so hard to convince ourselves of our self-worth. It's such a massive conversation. You hear about it every day. But I want to give you a simple illustration that will help you with this. You've been given a gift card before, right? Love gift cards. It's one of the best gifts you can give somebody. They can use it on their own time, their own schedule, whenever they want. It's great to get a gift card. $5 gift card to Starbucks is great. $50 gift card to Outback, great. Gift cards are awesome. Gift cards are worth the amount of money that they're said to be worth, right? If somebody gives you a $25 gift card to Chick-fil-A, you can go to Chick-fil-A and buy $25 worth of food, not pull out your wallet even, just hand them that gift card, you're good to go. You didn't have to bring a penny to take that $25. Worth $25, right? 
But I dare you to take that $25 gift card this afternoon right across the street to Dairy Queen and see if you could get a blizzard. They'd laugh at you. They say you can take that $25 gift card to Chick-fil-A and they don't have blizzards there. It's worth $25, isn't it? Isn't it? Is it worth $25 at Dairy Queen if it's a Chick-fil-A gift card? No. See, it's possible for something to have worth and value and us be trying to find that worth and value in the wrong place. Y'all, that's what's happening with our world. That's what's happening to my life and your life and the people around us. Yes, we are right that we have self-worth through and through. Yes, keep telling people that we have self-worth. But keep the conversation going where if you're looking for your worth in places where you don't find it, you won't find it. And you get in this argument. Can you picture it? Over here at Dairy Queen, arguing with them about if this thing's worth $25. Is it worth $25? Yes, Okay, let me use it. No, it's not worth anything here. Are you saying it's not worth anything? No, I'm saying it's worth $25, right? You see how that goes. That's what's happening in our world today. Everybody's arguing about self-worth, but we're looking for it in places that you don't find it. And it's not that one's horribly bad or anything like that. It's just we're mistaken on where it's worth, where the value's found, you leave your Dairy Queen with your $25 gift card and you go right over to Chick-fil-A and there won't even be a hiccup or a speed bump. You'll walk right in, no questions asked, $25, here you go. Bam, it was worth that much because you found it in the right place. The worth of our lives comes from the God that made us and the God that loves us and the God that Lives is laying his son for us. The worth of our lives is found in that the one who has the most worth, Jesus, gave himself, suffered and died, was killed for our sins. In understanding our worth, we look at how great a sacrifice God gave in his son. And we think he did that to redeem us. He did that to ransom us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. A couple years ago, the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, NBA basketball, got in trouble. They wouldn't even let him own the team anymore. So the NBA puts the LA Clippers for sale. Neat thing. Somebody want to buy the LA Clippers. This massive city, Los Angeles, California, was selling a team. Now, it's not the Lakers, but it's the Clippers, and the going rate, this wasn't that long ago, was 700000 700000 That's a lot of money, isn't it? Well, Steve Ballmer, co-partner with Bill Gates of Microsoft, walks up to the NBA and says, I'd like to buy it, 700000 They said, okay, what do you want to offer? He said, I'll, I'll give you $2 billion. The NBA was like, more than twice as much as we're asking? He said, yeah, I don't want to deal with everybody else making bids or whatever, seven, seven, fifty, eight hundred. I'll give you two billion for it right now. They're like, well, we're only asking seven hundred thousand dollars. I'll give you two billion. Done deal. He bought them. It's been just a few years. The LA Clippers right now are worth three point three billion. What an investment. 
when you know value, when you know what something's worth, you get it. God made us. He loves us. We're his, our all. And we turn our back on him and sin against him. We are all under sin. We are not worthy because of our sins. We don't love God like we should love God. We don't worship him like we should worship him. We don't labor to obey him because he knows what's best for us. But God knew the worth. And God sent the worthy one. And God ransomed us. And this picture in Revelation 5 is what it's going to be like. Everything there singing worthy. Every person there singing worthy. I want to ask you here in closing, will you be there? Will you be there? Will you admit that you're not the worthy one to approach the throne, but Christ is? And because of your trust in Christ, he sees your value, he knows your worth, you know your value, you know your worth, because worthy is the lamb who was slain for us. This is not a story about what someone thinks heaven will be like. This isn't a book that somebody's written that's now getting a lot of publicity. This is a vision of what's happening in heaven. Unworthy people singing worthy. And because we know the worth of Christ, we now know our worth. We are God's people, loved by God, forgiven of our sins. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Revelation 4 and 5, and we thank you, God, for some simple questions. Who is worthy? None. Is he worthy? Yes. For it in the wrong earth come from him. Oh God, may we not be looking for it in the wrong places, but when we see it in the God who loves us and saves us. Father, we ask for you to work in our hearts now that we would believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.